Last Sunday. That was a fun one, wasn't it? <laughs> Last Sunday, in our Afterwards series, I preached a sermon that uh, was an exploration of the Bible's words, the afterwards, about heaven. And I highlighted the fact that the Bible consistently uses the word heaven a little bit differently than we use the word heaven. When we talk about heaven, most of us talk about the nice place that we might go when we die, but that's really not the way the Bible uses the word heaven. Instead, when the Bible uses the word heaven, it almost always is describing the coming kingdom of God. It's really not describing a place that someone might go when they die. And in order to emphasize that point one Sunday ago, I made this statement. I said, none of us is going to heaven when we die. And there was a gasp in the crowd. None of us is going to heaven when we die, I said, and I still uphold that is true uh, in terms of how the Bible uses the words about heaven. And just to clarify or review or kind of bring you into the loop if you weren't here, there's really two reasons that I believe that statement is true. None of us is going to heaven when we die. The first is this, none of us is going to heaven because none of us is going to heaven in the sense that the Bible uses the word. In the sense that the Bible uses the word, heaven is a kingdom that is coming here, not a place that we might go there. And so none of us is going to. And secondly, that event, that culmination, that unification of heaven and earth isn't happening when I die or when you die. It's scheduled, according to the Bible, to happen at the end of all time after the final resurrection. So when I say none of us is going to heaven when we die, the emphasis a little bit on the going to and secondarily on the when we die. But I will admit... I will admit that having the pastor stand in the pulpit and tell a congregation full of people who are wonderful and love Jesus very, very much that they aren't going to heaven when they die can be a bit off-putting, maybe a bit alarming, maybe a bit disconcerting. But you know what? I think that's a good thing. I think it's a good thing to be alarmed and off-put and disconcerted from time to time. I think if we haven't had our world rocked by what the Bible says anytime recently, if we haven't allowed it to challenge what we thought we always knew, I submit that we probably just haven't been reading it closely enough. The Word of God is alive and it's active and it's sharper than any double-edged sword. And when we really immerse ourselves in it, we find no matter how many times we've read it that it speaks to us and it, it discerns our very being. And that's a good experience to have from time to time. But even if we remember and acknowledge, okay, Dan, we get what, we see what you were doing there. We understand you were trying to rattle our cages a little bit. The biblical references to heaven do in fact have much more to say about the coming kingdom than, than they really have to say about where you and I are headed after we die. Even if we acknowledge that, even if we kind of get to that place, that still leaves us with a great big question hanging in the air. The question is an important one, and I think it's on the minds of most people in this world. Uh, what does happen next? And for our purposes today, what does the Bible say about what's next? 
Now, if we're going to answer that question, I'm going to tell you very quickly, there's no single passage to look at. There's no specific book of the Bible that describes the human experience after death. There's no vivid descriptions. You might recall a few weeks ago, I said, authors have said, this is like signposts pointing into a dense fog. They tell us what's there, but we can't really fully see it or describe it yet. But what I can do today is take us on a brief tour of a few of those signposts. This isn't in your notes, and I'm certainly not going to read all of these passages. But if you are interested in doing some study on your own, which I submit is always a good thing, here are a few biblical references to life after death, but before resurrection. We have instances of the prophet Samuel that you can read in 1 Samuel chapter 28. We have instances involving Moses and Elijah at the Mount of Transfiguration, which is told in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We have the story that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus, which is in Luke chapter 16. We have the words that Jesus exchanged with the thief on the cross, the repentant thief on the cross. Gospel of Luke tells us their story in chapter 23. And the Apostle Paul wrote about it often. He had a set of expectations about what was going to happen to him after he breathed his last. And two of the places where we read about that are in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and in Philippians chapter 1. These are just a few of the examples we could add to this list if we wanted to get really detailed-oriented. But these are some very, very good examples of different signposts in Scripture that do point into that fog, that give us various ideas of what it is like after we die. We can take these passages and others like them and begin to formulate some more definite ideas about what the Bible says about what's next. I want to do that today, and maybe it's best to just start with the question that I think is on the minds of most people. Is our experience after death something that we should be afraid of? Or is it something that we should look forward to? And the biblical answer to that question essentially is, well, it depends. Should I be afraid of this or should I look forward to it? And I think the Bible says it depends. Here's what the Bible says. After we die, our experience is either paradise or turmoil. After we die, and no, I'm not doing any sort of trick here. I'm not going to get you like I got you last week. I'm talking about the moment after we die. According to the Bible, our experience is either paradise or turmoil. I referenced in the list we had a a moment ago the story that Jesus tells about a rich man and a poor man by the name of Lazarus. Jesus presents that story as a parable. Now, the parables of Jesus weren't real factual stories about things that actually happened. The parables of Jesus are stories that he would tell as teaching illustrations. That being said, the story that he tells of the rich man and Lazarus doesn't exactly fit the mold of the other parables that he told. There are a lot of things about it that are unique, and it's led some scholars to question, is this truly a hypothetical or a nonfiction parable? Or maybe is Jesus actually referencing a real event? Could it be that there really was a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus who had recently died? And Jesus is telling us 
what happened to them. Those questions really, I think, are ultimately unanswerable. But because there's some question there, I think we, we, we have no way of proving one or the other. So we have to be careful not to, to take this story too literally or too legalistically when we're trying to decide what's going to happen after we die. But even so, the big picture, I think, is pretty plain. I'm going to read the relevant text to you. Luke chapter 16, verse 22 tells us, The poor man, that was Lazarus, He died and he was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried, and he went off to the place of torment. So we have two men, we have two different lives, we have two different stories, and we have two different destinies after life. In this story, Jesus never mentions what was the deciding factor that caused one man to go this way and the other one to go the other way. We'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks. He doesn't reference that in this story. The story is just about contrasting the two different places, and there is a contrast. Now, let me just be very, very clear here. Nowhere in the story does, the, does Jesus mention the word heaven. And nowhere in the story does he mention the word hell, even though most of us might think of those words when we hear the description of these two places. Uh, Even if we want to use the words heaven and hell to describe these experiences, and that's okay, I'm not going to be the word police, but I think it's just important to remind ourselves that that's not really the words that the Bible uses. It's good to remember that one man is clearly enjoying a blissful paradise and the other is experiencing pain and regret and separation from God. Jesus reinforces this theme at the very end of his own life when hanging from the cross, he he turns and speaks to the repentant thief and he says in Luke chapter 23, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. It's coming. There is a paradise that awaits you on the other side of this life. Now, last week I laid out for you kind of the five steps that we see in the life of Jesus that we model our own lives on. There's life, there's death. That third step was the grave. Fourth was the resurrection and fifth was heaven. And so this is what we're talking about here, the grave. The grave is indeed the word that the Bible uses throughout in the Old Testament and in the New. It always refers to the experience after life as the grave. But that's not to say that we're just lying there waiting. The Bible even acknowledges that we who are alive might look at someone who who has passed and, and they appear to us to be, the Bible uses this word sometimes, asleep or at rest in the grave. And so yes, it uses those words, but it affirms that we aren't actually asleep. We aren't just waiting. We aren't asleep. There is a vivid experience of either paradise or turmoil that awaits us just beyond our final breath. So let's talk a little bit more about that vivid experience. After we die, we join others who have gone before. This is actually the understanding of our spiritual ancestors going back almost to the very beginning of time. At the very beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, long before the days of Jesus, long before the Holy Spirit had revealed anything to his people about the promise of heaven, long before anything like that, there was already the understanding that there were others waiting for us on the other side of our own lives. I could give you any one of dozens of examples of this, 
But let's go back to one of the very first heroes of the faith, Abraham. Genesis chapter 25, verse 8 describes his death. And it says, Abraham died at a ripe old age, having lived a long and satisfying life. He breathed his last and he joined his ancestors in death. That's the pattern that we see again and again and again throughout the biographies in scripture, that they joined those who had gone before them. If you are a follower of Christ, and if you've ever wondered about being reunited with the faithful who have gone before you, I believe the Bible gives you good reason to look forward to a joyful reunion. Be it with friends, be it with family members, including, I believe, even those that we've never met before. There are brothers and sisters, an entire heritage waiting for us on the other side of this life. Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, and John, the three of them got kind of a glimpse or a peek or a coming attraction of what that might be like in the story of the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountainside. They got to be with Jesus when suddenly they, there was an appearance and they saw Moses and Elijah. Now Moses and Elijah had both been dead for a really, really, really long time. And yet they were able to see them. We don't know. Again, we have a dense fog there. We don't know what that would have looked like or what that would have been like. But you know what's interesting to me is apparently Peter, James, and John recognized Moses and Elijah when they saw them, despite the fact that neither Moses nor Elijah was on Facebook. There were no photographs. They had no way of knowing what those men in the natural would look like. And the Bible doesn't go to great lengths to describe what they appeared like on that day. We don't know that, but there's this sense that Peter and James and John just kind of knew that, oh my goodness, that's, that's Moses, that's Elijah. What must that be like when the faithful pass from this life and step into the presence of those that have gone before? They're, oh my goodness, there's, there's a parent, there's an older sibling, there's a grandparent, there's somebody four or five generations back that that I never knew, but it was part of their heritage of faith that changed my life. And then going back through the centuries and the millennia and seeing the heroes that have gone before, whether from recorded history or from biblical history, there is a reunion awaiting us. Even more exciting, I believe the Bible indicates that those people are actually looking forward to the reunion as much as we are. Because after we die, it seems that we remain aware of life on earth. Now I say it seems, I, I, I couch this a little bit in the language because this one's a little bit more speculative. It's a little bit more difficult to say in black and white, this is exactly how it is. But it seems that we remain aware of life on earth. I referenced, we have an after death appearance by the prophet Samuel. And in that story, it seems that Samuel is aware of what's been going on with Saul. I referenced, we have this appearance of Moses and Elijah on the mountain of transfiguration. And it seems that Moses and Elijah are aware of what's been happening with Jesus. And even in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man is in the place of torment. And yet in that story, it seems that he's aware of what's been going on with his family. And so later on in the New Testament, when the author of Hebrews discusses the heritage of faith to which we belong, he discusses all the great ones that have gone before us. 
he culminates that discussion in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, by saying this, Oh, we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith. The idea here is that there are people from the past cheering you on in your life of faith, awaiting the day when they can rejoice together with you. It seems that those who have passed somehow have the ability to remain aware of life on earth. Before I move on, though, I think we need to very quickly address the other side of this coin. Even if they're aware of us, we have to avoid any temptation to think that maybe somehow we can communicate or interact with them. The Bible refers to that practice in any form that it might take as witchcraft. And it's, it's strictly forbidden and prohibited. So to put it bluntly, the Bible says you cannot have communication with the dead. In the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man specifically asked God, can I go back and talk to my family who has been left behind? And God said, absolutely not. Once you're there, you're there. It cannot happen. We, the living, cannot have communication of any sort with the dead. That means the Bible says there is no such thing as ghosts. In the story of Samuel, in those days, there were, there were mediums, there were clairvoyants, there were people who would uh, be hired to speak to the dead, just as there are today. In the story of Samuel, King Saul wanted to talk to Samuel. He just had one problem. Samuel had recently died. And so King Saul goes to a medium and says, I want you to conjure the ghost of Samuel so that I can ask him a question. The medium does exactly that, conjures the ghost, but this is what's noteworthy. When the ghost, as it were, of Samuel appears, I would put it this way, when Samuel appears, she is so startled by what she sees, she loses her mind. She goes crazy. She's paralyzed by fear. Now, why would that be? This woman is supposedly a medium who has done this time and time and time and time again. Well, I'll tell you why it be. It be because what just happened had never happened before had never happened before. Now we have one of two options. Either she was a charlatan, which certainly is, is possible, or more likely she, like plenty of other people, were involved unwittingly or unknowingly in demonic activities. You see, the demons, the demons of hell will take any opportunity to impersonate, oh yeah, I'm grandma, I'm here and I've got some words for you. And most likely this medium had seen that happen time and time again. But when the real thing happened, when, when, when Samuel actually showed up, it was unlike anything she had ever seen before. Because it just doesn't happen. There is no such thing as ghosts. And the Bible says she was frightened almost to the point of death. Finally, the Bible affirms it. Those that have gone before are in no way present with us. As tempting and as comforting as it might seem, and as often as we sometimes say things about loved ones who have passed still being a part of us, or I feel their presence, or I sense their presence, I believe the Bible teaches we have to avoid that kind of language. There is no sense in which they are active 
with us. This is why the Apostle Paul has the dilemmas that he has. The Apostle Paul knows about the paradise that awaits him. And he says multiple times in his writings, of course I'd love to go be with Jesus, but I have this problem. If I go there, I can't be here anymore. He says to his churches, if I leave, there is no sense in which I will still be with you to teach you and to guide you and lead you. Now, bear in mind, this is the same guy who, while he's alive, does talk about, hey, I'm able to be with you in spirit. He says that other places, but only while I'm alive. Once I'm gone, the Apostle Paul says, I'm gone. Once I'm gone, I'm gone. There is no sense in which those who have died can still be present with those who are alive. So any hint that the living can interact with somebody who has already passed is a classic tool used by Satan and his demons to lead people astray and to ultimately destroy them. Even if it starts out feeling good or feeling comfortable or feeling like an answer to prayer, it soon, it soon excuse me, turns into pain into spiritual confusion, into addiction, and even into death. And this would include seance, Ouija boards, voodoo, ghost hunters, the use of psychics, mediums, anything like this. These are spiritually dangerous phenomenon. They are demonic in nature and they have no place in the life of a Christian. But I digress. Back to the task at hand. Back to what happens when we die. After we die, our relationship with Jesus intensifies. Here's what I mean by that. And this is a key part of the difference we saw between paradise and turmoil. If you have a relationship with Jesus in this life, then that relationship will become intensified after you die. His presence in your life will be more vivid and more real than anything that you can now imagine. In the same sense, if you are out of relationship with Jesus in this life, then the distance between you will be more real and will be more vivid than anything you can now imagine. In the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man was confined to a place of turmoil. I've already referenced that. Now, I don't believe that his torment was inflicted by God. Rather, his torment was the very nature of his separation from God. It was the very absence of God in his reality. From where he was, though, the story tells us he could see how distant he had made himself from God's presence. And because he had died, there was no longer anything he could do about it. The Apostle Paul seems to have understood this intensification of our relationship with Jesus after death. Because of his understanding, as I said, he, he wrote about how, how he longed for that experience. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, he says, We would rather be away from these earthly bodies, for then we would be at home with the Lord. Sometimes you may have heard that quoted, to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. Another way of translating the Greek phrase he uses there. We would rather be away from these earthly bodies, for then we will be at home with the Lord. Here's one way of thinking about it. According to the Bible, our physical death 
really doesn't represent all that big of a transition in our spiritual life. It's just an intensification of our spiritual life. Whatever condition we lived in is merely locked in and made plain. How many of us have have been to a gender reveal party? Uh, Kat and Jari didn't have a party like that because Anori's gender was revealed when she was born, if, if I remember right. But, but lots of, of, of new parents these days find out and then have these gender reveal parties. And, and it seems like they've gotten more and more extravagant, right? Some of them are pretty crazy. We could probably swap some stories around here. But I think kind of the, your most basic gender reveal party is the party where you have a baker bake a cake. And the cake is either pink or blue, but it's covered with frosting so that nobody can see the actual color of the cake. And then at some point we cut the cake and when that first slice comes out, it's either blue cake or it's pink cake. I'm sure that must do a number to our insides. I don't know exactly how that must be. but Thank you, I'll just have the ice cream, right? Um, that's kind of your most basic gender reveal party, right? Well, I, I think the transition or the intensification that we talk about might be your relationship with Jesus might be a little bit like the cake at a gender reveal, right? It's either pink or it's blue. There's no, there's no in between here. We're either in relationship with Jesus or we're not, but it can be hard to see in this life it can be hard to see plainly because all of the layers of things in this life that cover it, like frosting covers that cake, right? Uh, Work, family, responsibilities, worries, concerns, whatever it might be, sometimes that relationship with Jesus is obscured and it's hard to really describe or see or identify. But when life is over, all that extra stuff, all of that frosting gets wiped away. And all that's left is what was always there in the first place, only now it's plain. Now it's vivid. Now it's real in a sense that we hadn't been able to see or describe before. I don't know, just a thought. Maybe, maybe our relationship with Jesus really is like cake. And if we die in Jesus, that means there's only one more thing for us to do. After we die, we continue to await the final resurrection. Remember the order of events I laid out for you last week, life, death, the grave, and then the resurrection, which leads us into the kingdom of heaven. The paradise that we experience after this life is over still isn't the heavenly kingdom that God had promised. That is yet to come. So on the other side of this life, are we just sitting back, relaxing, completely satisfied and fulfilled? No, I believe not. On the other side of this life, we still yearn. We still wait. We still hope. Do we remember that, that, that Paul says these things remain? Hope will remain. This is why there's still more to hope for. In John's vision recorded in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, He says this, I saw the souls of all who had been martyred. Now think about that for a moment. He's not talking about the end of time. This is before the resurrection. He saw the souls of those who had been martyred. For being faithful in their testimony, they shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long 
before you judge the people who belong to this world. How long? Then they were told to rest a little while longer. There's that word, rest. Rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters had joined them. If you know Jesus, you can live every day of this life with the assurance that the blessings of his paradise and the warmth of his presence await you just one breath beyond your last. And when your eyes close for the final time, they will open just an instant later in a place of unimaginable paradise. You will be welcomed by a great throng of the faithful who have gone before you. You will be in the presence of Jesus unlike anything you've ever been able to describe in this life. You will see things that you've never dreamed of. And in that moment, like the baseball players in the field of dreams, you will be tempted to say, is this heaven? And I believe that if you ask that question, Jesus will smile and he'll shake his head and he'll say, oh, my child, you haven't seen anything yet. You haven't seen anything yet. I referred a few times in the last couple of weeks to the writings of N.T. Wright, a theologian who I think does a great job of looking into these things. And he has discussed how the hope of the Bible isn't that there is life after death. There's hardly anything unique or special about that. Just about every mythology of of the world and the afterlife and the meaning of, of everything includes the idea that there is life after death. How many of us know the gospel is always better? The gospel is always better. The word of God is always better. The hope of the Bible isn't that there is life after death. No, he says the hope of the Bible is that there is life after life after death. The hope of the Bible, hear it again, is that there is life after life after death. And so if your feathers were ruffled or if you were intrigued or questioned some of the things that we've said in the last couple of weeks about whether or not we go to heaven when we die and how that all looks in in terms of what the Bible says, if you are upset by the reminder that we don't go to heaven when we die, know this, I would never share anything with you to upset you. I would never share anything to trick you. I would never do anything like that, but I would lead you to a place to discover the truth of what the Bible does say, because here's what's true. The Bible is always more wonderful than we could possibly have imagined. The truth is always better than what we thought it was, amen? The truth is always better than what we thought it was. For those in relationship with Jesus, a paradise greater than we can imagine awaits us beyond this life. But that is not our final destiny. One day in the midst of that paradise, We will hear the noise of a not too distant shout and a trumpet blast. And you'll awaken and look down to realize that suddenly you've been clothed with a new body, transformed really into a resurrection body. And you'll realize that you're in a familiar place, an earth like the one you knew in your life, but somehow renewed, somehow recreated, somehow made whole in a way that you never could have imagined. 
And you'll stand with those who have gone before and you'll join with those who still are and together you will welcome the king as he returns to his creation to reign forever. In church, that's heaven. That's heaven. And you know what I think must be among the very first orders of business in that new kingdom? According to the afterwords of Scripture, in court, according to what the Bible says, the very first order of business is a feast, a banquet, a celebration thousands of years in the making. But you know what God has done? He's given us a tasting. Would you take the communion emblems that were waiting for you on your chair as you came in? The communion meal is one that we we celebrate just as Jesus told us to celebrate on a regular basis. It's one that we do so with with a, a sense of remembrance because that's what Jesus said to do. He said, I want you to take this, eat it, and do it in remembrance of me, right? And remembrance looks backward. It looks into the past. But you know what's compelling? As we look into the past, as we look backwards, as Jesus told us to do, We remember his words, the words that his followers recorded that he shared that evening. And you know what he was talking about? We're looking past and he's talking about the future. Right? So Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And we go backwards to remember. And what do we remember? We remember that he said, look forward. We remember that he said, look forward. He took the bread and he broke it. And he said, oh, I've I've really looked forward to having this meal with you guys. And you know why? Because I'm not going to have it again until we all share it in that kingdom. You're going to get to have tastings. For as long as I'm gone, I want you to have tastings. I want you to remember that there's coming a day just after the shout. Just after the trumpet blast, just after you've awakened from your rest in your resurrection bodies, just after you've been placed in the new creation, we're going to sit down and we're going to have this meal again. Would you remember that that's where we're headed? And so Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said, do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup and he shared it and he said, in remembrance of me. But what are we remembering? We're remembering that there's a new covenant in my blood. There's a new arrangement. There's a new relationship. Church, I believe he's saying there is a new kingdom coming. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you take of the cup this morning? Stand with me as we conclude. (coughs) Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord, today, and we stand in affirmation that the truth is more wonderful than we could have dared to imagine. We are a race of people that are very, very interested in the paradise that lies beyond this life. 
Thank you, Lord, that we ain't seen nothing yet. Thank you, Lord, that the things that we think that we look forward to, the reunions and and the joy and the presence and all of those things, good as they are, that is not the end and the completion of your plan. But in fact, there is a kingdom that is coming. We haven't seen anything yet. We rejoice in your promises today. We thank you, Lord, today for the very vivid reminder of new life as we celebrated with Inori Hall. And we take that to say, Lord, thank you for new life. Thank you not for life after death merely, but Lord, thank you for the life after the life after death. That is the promise that we remember each time we take the bread and take of the cup. Father, I thank you that we are an eternal people. And so I pray, Lord, that your hand of blessing would be upon your people today, Lord, that you would lead us into a deeper understanding, an abiding understanding of what you have for us. Lord, that we would live every moment and every day of this life in total and complete and focused preparation for the next one. God, we are not a people who is just sitting back, looking at our watches, waiting for the next thing to happen. Lord, we are a people on mission. We are a people with purpose. We are a people who already has begun the reality of the new kingdom. We are a people who already has passed, as as the Gospel of John says, from death into life. We are a people who have already stepped into eternity. Uh, People talk about waiting. Lord, we aren't waiting for anything. We are not waiting. We are a now people. We are a now people. We are a now people. And so I pray that you would quicken our spirits, that you would quicken our hearts. I pray, Lord, we pray as the ancients prayed that your kingdom would come. We pray as the ancients prayed, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Lord, come quickly. And when you do, look upon your people and find us faithful. Find us faithful. We thank you for all of these things today. We praise you. We praise you. And we trust in the name of our Savior Jesus, by whose name we have been saved. That's the name in which we pray and everybody says. Amen. 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 Church bless you. We'll be here next week to talk some more afterwards.